Hello, and welcome to Modest Conversations. I'm here with Tim O'Reilly, who I'm a huge long-term fan of, as is my wife. Uh, we really look up to him. And, uh, you know, you've just published a new book uh, called WTF, uh, What's the Future? Uh, or there are other interpretations of <laughs> Yeah, well, it, of course, it has its usual meaning. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, so you... We were just starting to, to riff a little bit um, about kind of especially the latter part of the book. I mean, the book is is really great and everyone should go out and, and read it for sure. Um, and, you know, one of the things I was saying is I really took from it a very empowering message, right? Um, yeah. Rightly or wrongly, I'm not sure how much you intended that, but um, about, you know, there's, there's a lot of, I think, fear right now. Um, people feeling disconnected from technology. And I think a lot of this, what I took from the book was a lot of a empowering message of like the technology will do what we tell it to do. And right. there's a great place for humans if we decide to make a great place for humans in the future. Yeah, exactly. But an easy proactive choice. Um, yeah, that's exactly the core message of the book. I mean, the title is actually what's the future and why it's up to us. Got it. <laughs> and, and, and the, the, you know, the book builds towards this, uh, you know, actually the last section of course is a bunch of ideas towards what might be some possible solutions, but the, the sort of the central sort of pivot of the book is in this section where I'm really talking about the problem that has really been talked a lot about in AI uh, of the runaway objective function. You know, right. Nick Bostrom introduced this with the thought experiment of the paperclip maximizer, <laughs> uh, Elon Musk uh, in, um, uh, you know, in a Vanity Fair interview, it referred to a sort of a self-improving strawberry picking robot that eventually <laughs> decides, you know, humans are in the way of strawberry fields forever. And, you know, that fundamental idea, you tell this, uh, uh, you know, machine which can't improve itself to do something and it gets better and better at doing that one thing to the exclusion of everything else. Right. And my argument in the book, oh, I didn't frame it explicitly in terms of, of, the paperclip maximizer, the strawberry picking maximizer argument is simply that, that the runaway objective function is, is, is a, pre, is present right now. It's not something in some far future of hostile AI. Yeah. You know, I use the, the image of, you know, Skynet and I say, we've already had our Skynet moment, right. the moment where we set Skynet in motion. And, and the way I really try to get at it is really trying to educate people about this idea of the objective function. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a chapter about Google and Google search quality and how they're continually, despite the fact that there's all these algorithms, they're all trying to give you relevant results. Yep. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. The spammers, they have to come up with new approaches. So it's this work in progress of managing the algorithms. And I actually use the image that the algorithmic systems that companies like Google and Facebook are a little bit like the genies of Arabian mythology. Uh, they do exactly what we want, uh, but we didn't realize what we told them. That's right. And I, I really regret it. I have kicked myself a hundred times since I published the book because after it went to press, I remembered this fantastic quote from a guy named Andrew Singer. This is the challenge of books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and Andy uh, is unfortunately now deceased, uh, but he was a really good friend uh, uh, in the early days of the Macintosh, mm -hmm. he actually ran a company called Think, uh, Think Programming or Think Technologies. And they created the first C compiler for the Mac. And I wrote the manual for it, uh, for Think C. And, um, he, he, he said to me, the art of debugging is figuring out what you really told your program to do instead of what you thought you told your program to do. And in some sense, that's kind of the job of managing algorithmic systems. It's figuring out what it, they really doing as opposed to what you thought they were doing. Right. And, you know, that's, you know, and uh, refining the language so that you can even tell them what you mean. That's right. right. That's um, right. And so that's really the job of, 
you know, like I use the analogy in the book, the programmers at the workers at Google and Facebook are these programs and algorithmic systems. Uh, the programmers, they're managers, you know, and they're basically their job is to manage these systems. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the, the question then is, you know, what are we asking them to do? And, you know, like the genies of Arabian mythology, they, they can go haywire. You know, if you've ever seen Walt Disney's Fantasia, you know, that's actually long before Nick Bostrom there was the, the, uh, the maximizer. Fair know. enough. That's a good point. Yeah, it's the, it's the broom. Mickey, 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 <laughs> Mouse, Mickey Mouse has the spell that's and he right. says, get the, you know, the brooms can help him uh, fetch water. And they, and, and they start multiplying it, you know, actually digital. I never made that connection. That's a very good point. Yeah. It's a pretty deep movie. Yeah, it's a very deep movie. And, and of course, eventually they're flooding out the, uh, you know, the, the, the castle. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what we've seen in, in, you know, Facebook and fake news. You had a runaway objective function. It was like this idea of, which is a pretty damn good idea. You know, like, wow, we'll show people more of what they want. And people really liked it. Yeah. And, but then eventually people figured out how to exploit it and, yeah. and to, you know, and to start feeding, you know, partisanship and, 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 you know, the, the thing went awry. It's just like, again, you know, you look back at the history of Google search quality. There were all kinds of basically attacks on the integrity of the system. And I, I think in a lot of ways, you know, this is an attack on the integrity of the system. Well, or is, I mean, again, to go back to the brooms or the way, you know, what you think of the systems level, I mean, you know, the finances mean interesting is like you get what you ask for, right? Yeah. So at the end of the day, there's a question of you can call it spammers, although it's a negative attack, or you could actually just say that it's just reflected that any algorithm or any large powerful system ends up just the inputs just reflect what it's asking for. Well, that, that's absolutely <laughs> right, and, and there are untoward consequences, and people interact with it. There's there's all these attractors that change, you know, so that you don't quite get the objective function that you asked for. Well, it's but also I yeah, and I think that I mean something, something I find fascinating in all this is you know, you kind of get back to math and numbers, right? Mm-hmm. And what you can even instruct a system to do, yeah. right? And so I think one of the interesting questions is one, you know, given a full vocabulary, are you instructing the system correctly or the feedback yeah. algorithm for what you actually want? Right. And the other is like, do you even have the words or the concepts to express what it is that you're looking for, right? Uh, right. Which I think is a really interesting challenge. Yeah, but but, but I do take Mark seriously when he says... You know, we want to create better connections between people. Absolutely. But the- and, and so, you know, the fact is that the, 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 the objective function, uh, that, that was used to try to create that outcome turned to have the, out to have these untoward effects. Yeah. And so well, the, the, he's got to figure out the metrics- what he really told the system to do instead of what he really wanted. Right. Because the and, metrics ultimately, yeah. I mean, the, the systems function, at least as to date, and I yeah. think maybe AI will be an interesting yeah, story yeah. about how that evolves and how we're able to be more nuanced in the descriptions of what you want to a system. But yeah. right now, the systems, Wall Street, Facebook, Google, yeah. they all function on numbers, right? Yeah, and absolutely. like pretty simplistic ones, right? Yeah, in the end absolutely. of the day. And so the interesting challenge, or I think one of the most interesting challenges is you can say you want to create more connectivity or a great example is actually Google. You mm-hmm. want the best searcher that will define that. What is the best search result, right? It's mm-hmm. actually a very intellectually challenging problem, yeah. right? That in some ways is completely unsolved, right? Which is right. what is the best or the optimal. Right. Um, so it is an interesting because I just wonder what the limits of human expression or conception is like almost, do we need like a philosophy revolution as much as anything else? Cause it's very easy for like a wall street you know, financial or maximizing financial returns. Everyone can understand that you can create, organizations right. around that is like there's a framework for it it's hard to articulate what truth is though right right well the thing that i guess i i, 
I, I sit there with is, um, you know, we, 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 I think we have a sense of a better world when we see it. Yeah. We don't necessarily have a sense of that better world up front. Yeah. Uh, because we take, we have this kind of framing blindness. We see the future in terms of the past. Right. Uh, but let me come back to that in a minute because sure. I want to finish out this, uh, you know, runaway uh, objective function because it gets to kind of the thing I really like to talk about uh, in this conversation, uh, which is what is the master algorithm? Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I really started to see that, you know, our, a lot of the problems in our economy are very analogous and that there's this teachable moment because of what's happened with Facebook and fake news uh, to go, oh, wait, well, where else do we see a runaway objective function? Mm-hmm. And I, I think we see it in our financial markets mm-hmm. where we've literally said to them, uh, you know, optimize for shareholder value, treat humans as a cost to be eliminated. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like it's right out of the Terminator. You know, it's like people are a cost to be eliminated. Right. Well, the, the, <laughs> I think the, jo- the joke is, right, that we already – um, live in the matrix and are controlled by machines. So we all just do what the market says and the market's created by algorithms. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and, and so the, the, uh, the, the, there's sort of a fundamental question of we expect Facebook to kind of go to work on their algorithms and we're not making that same demand of our financial system. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not, we're, we're kind of like they're completely off the hook. You know, and we say, well, opioid crisis. Well, that, that's just like bad. Too bad, you know, it happened, you know, but you know, we're not going, wait, we actually created incentives that made it more likely that companies would basically say, oh, wow, well, we can sell these people, you know, drugs that increases our profits. That's actually what we're supposed to do. We have a fiduciary duty to increase our profits, uh, you know, and, and then the question is, where are people being trained in the ethics to go, wait a minute, that's actually not what we really meant. Yeah. You know, when we said, you know, and even going back to the original Milton Friedman, he, you know, essay about the social responsibility of businesses to increase its profits. Well, there's also just like these businesses, the question all comes down to time horizon, yeah, right? Yeah. And so the reality is when you yeah. think about discounted cash flow, it's basically seven years, right? Seven times, I mean, that's very roughly do seven times time. <laughs> time right. And that's kind of what you get in, especially in the interest in rate environment we exist in, right? And so yeah. the question is, how do you either get companies to be forced to think on a 50, 100-year time horizon, yeah. right? And you potentially do that through some interest rate magic, right? Or do you, like, need government, which is, I think, everyone else... Everyone, I think very yeah. few people, maybe some people in Silicon Valley, but very few people think that companies alone get there, right? Yeah, you need no, some I, I, regulatory framework that's looking out for the future. Yeah, well, you know, there's a really interesting concept that I just got uh, kind of injected into my head the other day. Actually, a couple of things that really been been... Fantastic. One was, um, I had a conversation about this the other day, and somebody said it's really uh, uh, there's been a great historical examples of this, which is basically the the problem of trust uh, in asymmetric markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the the basically it, ha- it happened originally. I, mean, I first heard about it with you know why. So market power moved from Spain to the Netherlands, for example, because and it was basically because the king in Spain was so powerful, people you know couldn't lend to him because he would just basically say, "Screw you, yeah, yeah. I'm not paying back the debts." And so you know all the commerce moved to the Netherlands and then moved to the UK, and the, the UK had a similar problem, you know, uh, 
And there was basically a particular point, and they, they basically restored trust by, effectively by tying the king's hands. Right. So the king couldn't do certain things. And this was brought up in the context of a discussion that we were having about, you know, should Google be broken up or, you know, which was this, uh, this guy, Matt Stoller, was arguing, uh, you know, quite, quite furiously. And, and this guy, Henry Farrell, just brought up this notion of, well, what would it mean? You know, what is the equivalent of tying the king's hands in the context of, of an antitrust discussion, mm-hmm. you know, what are the, the impermissible behaviors that, you know, the, the, you know, we would actually have to have some kind of, of legal constraint against that would enable us to have trust of a, of a very, very powerful act. And in what context, I mean, <coughs> what, what is the rule? Again, you get to frameworks and, and language. Like yeah. what right now it's pretty straightforward. It doesn't mean you can't change it right now. It's if you use one monopoly to create a second monopoly for you, yeah, that's kind of the, front, the 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 level we've all kind of said as a society, like that's what we're going to regulate, right? It's actually okay to have a monopoly. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, yeah although I, I'm really, this is really one of the things I've really been thinking about, though, which is um, there's uh, and this is very half baked. So uh, I'm not really, fine. I'll match you with more half baked stuff right yeah. after. <laughs> uh, it, it's this idea that. Um, You know, we basically an economy is a three-legged stool. Uh, there's consumers, which yep. everybody's like, as long as it's good for consumers, it's good. There's uh, these big platforms. You know, that's the thing. You know, the the Adam Smith, you know, uh, invisible hand market was small producers. It was cobblers. And it was people making pins. Yeah, it was people <laughs> making stuff for each other, exchanging stuff. And we now have this uh, market where there's these vast intermediaries. Yep. And those intermediaries, and we now have the situation where it's the, these companies that were intermediaries and consumers are the only ones who are, are valued. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the original producers get devalued. So you, you know, I was just looking the other day at uh, Google's financials for the last five years and you notice that the, the share of ad revenue on partner sites has gone down from nearly 30% to about 18% right. in the last five years. More and more of the advertising that used to go out to other sites on the web is now going to Google for its well, own the sites. The web is dead. <laughs> right. But, but it's sort of, it, 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 you kind of look at that and you go, okay, well, what's the end game there? That Google is the only provider? Uh, you know, and, and it, that leads me down a path of, it seems to me that when they get to that point, the stool falls down because if there's not enough opportunity for other people. Well, interestingly, though, there is a kind of third stool, which I think you are part of the stool, which you already mentioned, which is shareholders, right? And so I actually think the interesting dynamic, rightly or wrongly, it's kind of maybe, here's a half-baked idea for you. It's pseudo-communist, yeah. right, in terms of outcomes when you have these, like, is if you have these big platforms that are basically owned by a few executives and then a bunch of pension funds. And those pension funds represent consumers in the population they and are selling to them. They represent about half of the population. Well, fair best. enough. Half and, of the, and, unfor- the population that votes, let's put it that way. Yeah. I'm not saying there's a good idea. I'm just yeah. saying there is something else going yeah. on there because I think it truly, if it truly were platforms controlled by a very tightly held group of people and consumers, mm-hmm. I think there would be a lot. I think the challenge is the fact that, you know, People are relying upon Wall Street, especially in a world where there's like less social protection, right? right. Um, to be to be strong, right? It, people are, do want the market to go up, and I think that's a really challenging place it, to be. It, it is, and we've kind of bought that idea that, that that if the market goes up, it's good for everybody, and, right? And, and it's very similar to the the thinking of of um, 
and actually we're coming back to this sort of over optimization on one thing yep. kind of, of market. You know, it's good if the market goes up because it's good for the people who are shareholders and it's particularly good for the people who are making that market. Yep. Uh, who are disproportionately the shareholders. Uh, I was talking to a guy from a pension fund, uh, just this morning and he said, you know, some, I forget who it was, some, somebody from one of the big hedge funds just bought a $150 million, you know, apartment in Manhattan. And uh, he said that $150 million came from my, you know, retired teachers. And, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of kind of, we have to wake up as pension funds and as actual owners and, and actually be a a much more effective counterweight to the, to the people who are kind of gaming the system. Yeah. And so, yeah, gaming is, it is tough because it's just, where do you draw the lines about, you know, fair play versus unfair? I mean, it's actually interesting that with the Panama, not Panama, what was the, um, what are the papers that just got released? Panama papers. It was the Panama yeah, papers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, there's no one like today. Oh, oh, just, oh, just really. Just like recently. literally in the last like oh, 48 I, hours. Oh, I missed that. Anyway, well, the upside yeah. is I feel like there's this kind of other, this other really important question of like, okay, you have this algorithm. And the interesting thing about the paperclip uh, or the, the strawberry machine, right, is the kind of implicit joke in all of it is that it kind of usually massively breaks the rules of ethics, right? Mm-hmm. Or like what humans would articulate as ethics in order to like hit its mark. So the paperclip one being, hey, I need to make more paperclips. I'm going to drag a black hole next to Earth because yeah. I need the energy to make paperclips. Who cares about the people, right? Yeah. Uh, and you think about the hedge fund guys or things like that. There's this question of like, well, they didn't break the rules, right? They just broke the ethics potentially or what was intended right. by them. Well, <laughs> and the thing that I guess I, I've been really thinking about a lot in this, in the context of, you know, kind of as I've finished writing the book and continue to think about the issues I raised is this is really big distinction between the, 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 the systems that you and I work with in the tech industry, you know, whether it's Google, Facebook or Amazon, we know that they're designed systems. We know that we made them. Yep. And we know that if they don't work, we can fix them. We can make them better. We may not make them perfect, but we can always expect that we can work on them and improve them. And the mythology about financial systems that's been sold to us is that they're a natural phenomenon, mm-hmm. that the market is just the way it is. You know, and, and we have to really, I think, understand that the market is a design system sure. also. And we have a whole set of people who are basically telling us constantly, don't look at this. It's not something that you can change because this is actually, you know, we have all these equations to show you that this is actually the way it just works. Is that any, is that really different though? Is that just because we're in Silicon Valley? I would argue that like the people who work at the Fed, right, probably look at Silicon Valley and have the same... Like, you know, yeah, you that's the true. Same they, they say, oh, yeah, they go, oh, it's just the algorithm. This is the, you know what I mean? So I wonder if that's just yeah, like a, because yeah, of our there, particular. There may, maybe, you may be right, but there is a narrative uh, that, uh, you know, you know, don't interfere with the natural workings of markets because they're intelligent. Yeah. You know, they'll, they'll well, come that's up with the, the, the right the, answer. The Hayekian view. I mean, yeah. this is, I mean, I don't know. Actually, this is the other thing I wanted to bring up was a book I just discovered. Uh, by George Akerlof and, and, uh, Bob Schiller, both Nobel Prize winning ac- economists called Fishing for Fools. I don't know if you I haven't, it. I haven't seen this now. It's both PH, uh, you know, for fishing and for fools. <laughs> and they did this brilliant thing because there's a lot of people who've written, well, markets aren't really efficient. 
uh, you know, here's where they fail. Sure. You know, uh, market failure is where government needs to intervene. Akerlof and Schiller make a different claim. They say, yes, markets are perfectly efficient. In fact, they're so efficient that there is an efficient market for deception. There's an efficient market for preying on people's cognitive biases. Yeah. There's an efficient market for manipulating yep. people. And so for every, you know, uh, fish, there is a fool. Yeah. You well, know? there's a yeah, great, yeah. I, I read a great book. I really enjoyed, <clears throat> I can't remember the name of it, but I'll post in the comments and find it, um, about the history of like fraud. Right. And it basically goes to this like long history of like all the greatest frauds ever pulled off. And it's a yeah. wonderfully fun book, right? Like all of these vignettes. Yeah. But one of the points the book made is that actually it's relatively recent that in, in, in American history that fraud was both illegal and bad. Like basically for a lot of American history, it was actually considered part of the natural dynamic that you'd have yeah. these fraudsters running around. And like, if you were dumb enough to fall for their fraud, then you should lose your money. Yeah. Well, <laughs> right? we still have a little bit of that. We do. We have a little bit of that, but it's, yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, in a, in an ICO world, perhaps that's exactly what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. But it's, um, uh, Opinions about this stuff vary. I mean, I, I just wonder, I mean, the thing that I think is so difficult about markets and frankly about social networks and, mm-hmm. you know, as well as like, I like the idea that markets are information machines. Yeah. Right. That's a very powerful idea. Right. And say, oh, totally. well, you, you know, you don't want to manipulate markets mostly, yeah. right? Except for they really fail because that's exactly like the amount of data that we all have to process and yeah. the economy that the economy has to process to decide where to allocate resources and what to do is too complicated. So you basically reduce it down to right. numbers and those numbers tell you where to put your attention and it works inside companies that way too you know you have budgets no, I and, understand but I, and, I, but I think that the, the, the thing that's interesting when I talk about this a lot of people go well and again this is part of what we've been sold there's two alternatives there's uh, you know uh, there's letting the market run and then there's people who try to control the market and manage it and that's central planning and we know that doesn't work and I'm talking about something completely different which is recognizing the designed elements of our current markets. Yep. Uh, you know, for example, tax rates. Yep. They are a design feature that has outcomes. And you know, so, for example, when we look at a problem, like we go, oh, we're hollowing out the economy. Well, you know, it, there are things like, well, we have a lower tax rate on capital gains than we have on uh, uh, dividends, which, you know, which favors... Yeah, repurchases, sure. uh, which favors, uh, you know, investment in paper assets. Uh, we have, you know, depreciation schedules. We have all these rules that shape our economy. Yeah. And they're as, just as dispositive as, you know, Google or Facebook's algorithms. No question. And nobody is sitting there going, well, if we, you know, you know, are these really producing the outcome that we want? You know, are we basically, you I, know, if we're hollowing out the economy because we've said to companies, I'll edit that out. If, we're, if we're hollowing out the economy because we've told companies to preferentially invest in financial assets rather than in the real world, to basically pay people less because that will increase share price, uh, you know, we basically uh, have, have set a, a bunch of incentives at work. It's not the natural working of the market. It's simply a set of choices. Totally. And I think the interesting thing about now versus before is, yeah. to your point, because we've become so much more efficient, because we work so much faster, the world moves so much faster, you get, you know, it used to be, I would argue, you might make some of these design choices, they'd be murky, right? Like there was kind of like some yeah. give in the system. Yeah. But now you almost instantly get 
the outcome, the, the, the market, society, the way we work is efficient enough that if you make a choice about capital gains tax rates, right, within years you get the outcome of that, right, in terms of people reorganizing how they operate and anything. Right, like right. That. And, and, you know, but again, I think there's some great lessons from tech companies, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, Google and Facebook don't think you get to fix it once. You know, it's like they get this a dynamic system and you, there's going to be consequences. You fix something. And, yeah, but and, and I you think have to keep fixing. I'm with you, but I also think the thing to keep in mind that I think is difficult is that works really well because you have very strong centralized leadership. Yeah, no, I that does not that. work. So, I mean, I think that when you think about designing systems or tools or machines, you know, we have you know, you take like a, dem- a democratic system, yeah, right? Yeah, and that's fair. You don't that's get fair. to just like redraft everything every year, right? Or tweak the algorithm all the time. And I actually think this is one of the big things. I actually just wrote an article talking about this that we got published today a little bit how like i think in some ways one of the real implications of the future the easy thing that's going to happen is a lot of mess right you're going to have overlapping jurisdictions and people yeah. trying to balance yeah. freedom versus yeah. uh versus safety versus equality when they're all in tension with each other and the thing i kind of hope is that we clarify our stack rank of priorities well, right? exactly um, right exactly right and i i do I, one of the things i do talk about in the book is this sort of uh, notion of um, uh, which came from a guy named Mark Blythe about what happened after World War II yeah. as a really good, hopeful model. You know, I, you know, and this is sort of a central notion in the book that we can make ch- different choices. You know, and here we have this great example: World War One. You know, uh, and then you know, twenty some years later, World War Two. Yeah, and in between, you know, World War One, punish the losers. Uh, you know, continue doubling down on. Uh, you know, uh, wealth inequality. Uh, you end up with a global depression, rise of fascism, and you have a do-over, another great world war. After the Second World War, uh, instead of punishing the losers, help them rebuild. Yeah. Uh, you know, instead of basically telling all those uh, returning soldiers, well, sorry, you're out of work. You know, we sent you all off to the wars, but now we've got nothing for you to do. Uh, you know, we basically did the GI Bill. We, you know, found all these ways to get, send them back to school, buy yeah. farms. You know, you go look at all the advertising and, and, uh, you go, we made different choices and, and we led, you know, that magical period of post-war prosperity was the result of a set of choices that, that was really actually shaped by the fear of what happened after World War One. Well, it was and, like, but, it was actually put people first, put people back to work. Well, I think it was make also. Make sure that people, we have a, uh, you know. It was a real stroke of long-term thinking, too, though. And I think that's, like, right. really the challenge in a lot right. of this stuff is that, I mean, the reason it was partially fear of World War One was also partially, you know, the U.S. being in such a hegemonic state, yeah. right, after the Second World War, right, and being willing to, like, effectively continue the pain a little bit, right? Like, well, I think we're in an interesting place where uh, one of the things I think about in, you know, looking at the world future, you know, for all the things that are not good about China— they are acting that way. Yep. They are acting with a long-term view and they are saying, wow, we have a bunch of forces that we have to balance. Uh, you know, if we don't keep, uh, you know, people employed, you know, there's going to be social unrest. Yep. Uh, you know, so they're kind of in that position that we were in after World War II where they were going, we have a, we have a lot of responsibility for keeping this thing going versus this, you know, government could do no right. Let the the market just naturally sort it out, rather than realizing that the market is in fact a designed entity. Yeah, yeah, and I think the other thing that you know, I think I wonder how you think about this with Silicon Valley and runaway algorithms and a lot of these things is is 
I would always call it the double-edged sword of compound interest, mm-hmm. right? And what I mean by that is I think, you know, in Silicon Valley, everyone talks about exponential curves and, like, yeah. you know, these curves are on. And, like, one of the implications of that are that small changes today, right, are first very hard or impossible to reverse later, right? Mm-hmm. That's, like, kind of implicit in the idea. And That's second, an interesting point, yeah. right, it's like you kind of are setting courses it's uh, in the slingshot you to very different locations, right? Mm-hmm. And you have kind of some agency early on. Maybe you have enough power or strength to move it. But there is this kind of it's, – it's actually interesting because I wonder if this runs counter to this concept of um, how much agency even these companies have over these things, mm-hmm. right? Which is, yes, early on you, you choose your path. But at a certain point, if the power just builds and builds and builds and compounds, like you lose the ability to change the outcome you're after, yeah, you know, I guess I would just say, uh, first of all, I don't think that the Silicon Valley companies have as much power as we think they do. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking about, and this kind of goes back to, you know, this is sort of idea in Silicon Valley that these founders have super voting stock and that gives them the ability to control the future of their companies. But the reason why that ultimately, I think, doesn't work is because the ability to hire the best That's people. That's absolutely right. It's is, all about retaining is, talent. Uh, retaining the talent is crucial. And you do that because your stock price is going up. Because stock-based compensation yep. is such a big part of the game, uh, you know, every company is slave. It doesn't matter well, it's how much that, you It's also the social predilections of your employees. Yeah. Uh, I think it's partially comp, right? Yeah, but yeah. partially, I mean, I, I, the number of decisions that you watch big tech companies make that are... I would argue long-term questionable, but are clearly the right decision to make if you have a bunch of 22-year-old hyper-liberal uh, yeah. employees. It, for me, is is very high. Hmm. Interesting. And that again, like as someone who's pretty liberal, they mostly align with my values. But I could make counter arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's an example? Well, here's what I'll get in trouble for. Uh, I'll get in trouble for anything I say in, in this regard. But um, I saw, I think it was today, that like Facebook banned private gun sales on their platform mm-hmm. no brainer easiest decision in the world to make right in this environment right like you think about the employee population you think about um you know the culture nationally with gun violence i mean this is a cinch to make this call and everyone's happy about it um there's an argument right that actually you would rather have private gun sales happening on facebook where there's real identity, where it's monitored, where you can understand what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. And, can, and without outright banning it versus forcing it off into the dark web, right? Mm-hmm. You can make that argument. You can yeah. also make an argument about, you know, who gets to decide what you do and don't sell on platforms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's all sorts of arguments. You can make. So again, like, I, you know, this is not one, it's not a fun one to make because it's, it's one that no. I think is very easy to decide, but it isn't so simple. No, I think I think that's true, and I, 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 to me, the biggest thing that we need to do as a as a culture is hold ourselves accountable. I mean, I do think that the, um, you know, the 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 idea that somehow it's somebody else who's making us do it is is a mistake. You know, the you know the image that I've been using is, you know, the divine right of Kings. Mm-hmm. And, and right now we have the divine right of capital, you know? And the fact is at some point people stop believing in that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and of course I had a great email from somebody who was maybe in Denmark or something like that. I had written something we ever used to believe in the divine right of capital, uh, divine right of Kings. And, and, and this guy wrote, it's like, 
No, us barbarians in the north never believed in that until <laughs> Charlemagne wrote, wrote, you know, rammed it down our well, throats. I mean, but, but like, um, interestingly, I hear you. The question is, what's the alternative? Because if you think about it globally, right, there's the divine right of kings, which is derived basically from military force, right? right? Like, right. It, it was claimed yeah, divine, yeah. but really it was yeah, the it church was, plus, the, you know, yeah, let's talk about backed yeah. up with swords, yeah. right? There's the divine right of capital, which... You could make the argument, you could, right, that a lot of the, you know, post-war, especially World War II system and how we think about the value of capital has a lot to do with the government requiring dollars to be collected. I'm sorry, tax to be collected in dollars. And like, it's a, it's a more sophisticated, abstract system. I'm not sure I buy that part. I mean, I, I think it really has become this notion that the, the fruits of, of productivity, you know, if you look at, say, capitalism in Northern Europe, versus capitalism in America. It's very much, you know, there's a bunch of parties to this transaction. Everybody should get something out of it. Yeah. And, you know, here in America, we have built over the last 40, 50 years of, of sort of a, a very different ideology that says... Uh, well, it's an, it's an ideology in theory of freedom. Yeah, we, but, but it really <laughs> is basically a cover story for, uh, you know... It, Everything belongs to, 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 to the capital, you know, and, you know, and I think we've, that's led us down the, the wrong path, I, you know, and I think it's sort of some interesting ways to just think about again how it's baked into the system. Uh, you know, I had a conversation with Hal Varian about this and he was like, but that's how we do economics. You know, yeah. what's left over is the return to capital. Right. And they go, but that's actually how we're measuring it. Well, that, yeah. And this is actually my number one, like, to get to, back to the <laughs> measurement thing. This is my number one, um, thing I'm most interested in is, how we talk about the dollar economy versus the whole economy. Yeah. Right. And the fact is, is like the reason that, you know, my favorite example of this is women in the workforce, right? Yeah. Throughout the 20th century economy, a lot of GDP growth is women entering the workforce. Yeah. It wasn't like they weren't working before. They yeah. were just not dollar denominated in their yeah. work. They weren't taxed on yeah. their work, right? Yeah. They existed in a different economy. So we're, historically humans always had multiple economies and relationships going yeah. and accounts of all sorts of different yeah. nature. And there's been a huge incentive with globalization, again, back to measurement. To get it all To get it all dominated in dollars so we can trade. Because, you know, what if you want a washing machine yeah. that's going to be made from parts all over the world? You're not going to pay with your your pie-baking abilities, yeah. right? Like, you need to denominate. Yeah. And interestingly, you need an algorithm. So the question in my mind, I go back to measurement and algorithms. Because yeah. algorithms do need measurement to work, yeah. right? They need the data properly formatted. Is how do you describe your objective function yeah. in a multi-capital world um, in a way that we can all agree. Because I think if you could do that, yeah. that will, but you know, anything that you come up with the simplistic, Oh, you know, we care about health and lifespan. Oh, we, these are all far too simplistic. Um, yeah. I, I do think though, that we could do a better job of modeling the system. Again, whether, whether, yeah, I, you know, I, I agree a lot's going to be left out no matter what we do. But if you think about, I, I, I'm shaped by this idea that I encountered in the 1970s called the clothesline paradox. I don't know this. Uh, so uh, this is this idea from this guy named Steve Bear. It was in Coevolution Quarterly, Stuart Brand's magazine yeah, back yeah. in the 70s. I read it when I was in college. And uh, it uh, basically was talking about energy accounting. And it's like, okay, you put your clothes in the dryer yep. and you use some measurable amount of, of fossil fuel. You put your clothes on the clothesline, it doesn't get, it does get subtracted from fossil fuel because that doesn't get used, but it doesn't get added to renewables. Right. 
It just disappears from the accounting. And, you know, once you think about that, you go, there's all kinds of things that are subject to the closed line paradox. Right. You know, so like for me, that was like open source software. Totally. Uh, you know, it was like all these people creating this thing. And, and then the value often is recaptured in some completely other place. Right. So I wrote a, a, a sort of a, a study maybe four or five years ago on open source and the closed line paradox, like talking about how the value of one of the places the value of open source showed up that nobody really thought about was in uh, uh, small ISPs and domain registration companies yeah. and all these people that would make it possible for, you know, some little restaurant to put up a website, you know, cause it was all using WordPress and, uh, you know, Apache and the DNS and all these things that were really not getting paid for in the normal way. But it's like somebody's, you know, you know, you're paying somebody five bucks a month and they host your website for you. Right. You know, it's like there was this stuff that had disappeared and that was being denominated somewhere yeah. far else over here. Totally. And so that becomes and, and so, yeah. so the, the thing I started thinking a lot about is there's a, and I don't know that we can, there's actually, it turns out there's a body of accounting. I just learned about this again from the food camp we did the other day. Somebody pointed me to it. A, a body of economic research that, that uses this technique, which I've encountered only in energy accounting. It's the use of something called a Sankey diagram, okay. which is basically the, the, the sources and the flows of, of various things. So you can, it's really easy to understand in terms of energy. You know, we get so much of our energy from coal, uh, so much from, uh, you know, uh, oil, so much from natural gas, so much from hydropower. So those are all the inputs. And, and then there's all these uses of that energy. And it's basically a map that shows the mapping from the sources to sure. what it's used. And, you know, this is the, you know, coal for electricity generation. So much of oil is actually used for plastics. So much is used for, uh, you know, actually, you know, whatever. So here's how much is in embodied energy versus in transportation. And you end up with this very complex, you know, flow map. And I started thinking about like that in the context of, say, computer platforms. You know, who gets what? Why? Yeah. You know, what are, what's, what are the flows of value? You know, all of us users who contribute to the web and it, it, it's extracted by Google in this way. We're also getting all this value. Totally. You know, but could we start to build some interesting models that would help us understand that better? It's also applicable in areas like this idea of stock-based compensation. You know, every year Google issues $4 billion or so of new stock, which it gives to employees. You know, yet the financial statements, you're sure it's there in a little separate section, which is how I know that that's the, the, the number, but it's not in the P&L. Right. You know, because well, this is one of the great tricks of Silicon Valley companies for a long time is issuing a huge amount of stock comp that actually totally changes their return profile in a lot of ways. That, that's right. And it, and it changes their compensation. But if you had a Sankey diagram kind of model, you would basically look and you'd go, oh, the, the employee compensation output is way bigger than it appears yeah. because it's actually got this extra input that's flowing through all the way through. And, and, I, and, I just think and I that's hear flowing you. From, yeah, anyway. But to get the flows out, you still need to be able to measure – like you need a denominated mm -hmm. something to measure, right? No, that's fair. And the I, problem I, is, is that like you think about like take like a Facebook. I actually would argue that the social surplus created by Facebook. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I would think this is massive. It's just yeah. undenominated, right? Yeah. And like I would actually argue there's a big problem at the government level because I believe that what's happening a lot right now is. You know, the economy is not, the dollar economy is not growing very fast. Right. That doesn't mean the economy isn't growing very fast. It means right. the dollar economy is not growing very yeah. fast. And yeah. if those totally two things agree. massively decouple, then you have other really interesting tax base problems because all of a sudden you're yeah. in a world where actually if we went, I, if we went through a period where 
let's pretend the percentage of the economy that was dollar denominated grew very quickly, yeah. right? And now it's on the other side of that where it's actually declining. Your tax base shrinks, yeah. right? And then you end up with an interesting problem, which is like to the extent you're trying to provide dollar-denominated services, what do you do? And then how do you deal with all the non-dollar-denominated things that people need, yeah. right? Um, well, it's just this very, very interesting aspect where you know, a lot of consumption is shifting to these non-denominated... For sure. I mean, my favorite example is like you take like entertainment. Yeah. It's like if you used to go to the movie theater yeah. and now you chat with your friends or it's easier to meet up with them, that is a GDP negative shift. Well, not if you meet up with them in real life because you probably... Depends whether you spend it. Yeah. yeah if it's Park or you're at a restaurant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I would, you know, to me, the interesting thing is just when people basically are, are, are getting together purely online sure. and, and, you know, in, in, in chat or watching, you know, although there's starting to be an economy. And there's also some interesting convertibility. There's always, yeah. there's always convertibility, but the exchange rate is terrible, yeah, right? Yeah. Usually, so it's like yeah. you can c- convert social capital to financial capital. Yeah, you just don't want to, right? Because you know, if you went around and said, "Hey, look, I really, you know, I really need, you know, let's stop being friends. Just like give me whatever you're you're going to give me, and then we're going to be stopping." You could, you could, you get a few bucks out of that, but it's a terrible exchange rate, right? It's getting better in a lot of cases, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, look at Patreon and the ability of people to, you know. Get their true fans to give them money for sure, but the absolutely I, that's a very good point that you it know, is getting getting better in know. certain ways. Yeah. But it, the the fungibility of these in theory, if you could just denominate everything down to a common language of dollar, you obviously can't. But if you could, then I think that you would have at least part of the solution to the runaway paperclip problem because at yeah. least you'd have things measured in a way you could describe them and therefore decide. What you want the algorithm to do. My biggest concern, though, is you go back to like I just think you can't denominate this stuff. Well, and the question I, I have, more, per, perhaps more more profoundly, is do we want to? You know, I mean, if in fact, you know, when when I sort of imagine what makes a good economy, uh, it's that uh, sort of fundamental infrastructure services get cheaper and cheaper. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and they become, uh, you know, effectively utilities. You know, I mean, we, we kind of go, you think about the, the, the experience of a city, you know, you, right. you kind of go, you want, you know, running water, you want electricity, you want streets, uh, you want public safety, uh, you know, you want, and, and in the online realm, you want your search results to work. You want to be able to connect yeah. with your friends. You know, these, these are really sort of infrastructure services and they should be cheap. I think, you know, in, in a good society. Well, we, and they we want are to be, pretty cheap. They want to be cheap, ubiquitous, fair, right? Fair is a tough word. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think we know when, when, when it's not, uh, when people are, 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 you know, it's like every time I'm in Washington, D.C., and I see, oh, my God, there's a motorcade coming down. It's some freaking bureaucrat, it's a high bureaucrat going to work with a motorcade of cops, and everybody has to stand aside. You go, that's not fair. Yeah. When did we become that kind of society? Yeah. You know, um, but... I, I think, you know, you, you could imagine machines doing more and more stuff like that mm-hmm. cheaply for us. And then I go, what would the economy be? Yeah. And there's two kinds of, of, of stuff in the economy. And some of it's going to be convertible stuff, and I think it could be. And some of it is, is not convertible. You know, I mean, the fact that we're willing to spend the afternoon talking with each other. Yeah. Not particularly convertible. It's just, it's just, but we're, we're both happy to do it. Yeah. And, uh, you know... I think, you know, if you look at, to me, what would be a good life for a lot of people, 
is uh, uh, this labor economist, uh, uh, David Otor said to me, it was great. I asked him, I said, are there any good natural experiments in, in basic income? Yeah. And he said, yeah, uh, Saudi Arabia and Norway. Sure. And he said, oil wealth. (laughs) Yeah. Both have oil wealth. Uh, and they decided to distribute it differently. You know, Saudi Arabia gave it to a very small number of people. They treated, uh, you know, work as beneath most of those people, you know, and they used these guest workers who were treated really badly. Not a very nice society. So in Norway, everybody works, all kinds of work are valued. Everybody just works a little less. Yeah. And I go, I think, you know, when we think about the good life, I think we would think of it as a better mix of work and play. Yeah, I think and, that and caring for people and f- time with friends. And, and when I think about why is life today better than it was, you know, 100 years ago, it's like we have a better mix. We don't work 70 hours a week. We have, you know, we have better food. We have better, uh, uh, you know, uh, clothing. We have better uh, heat and cold, you know, control. You know, so we have basically, I think we kind of know what we what we want. But we're not admitting that we're not building a system right now that's that's doing that. We're telling ourselves that, oh, this is the best of all possible worlds, when yeah. in fact it isn't. Yeah, although you think it's interesting also to talk about different cultures, for yeah. instance, um, globally. And even just, I mean, the over, way overly simplistic about it, you think about, you know, on a generational level, the people who selected to come to America. There's basically yeah. everyone here, here yeah, you know, yeah. unfortunately, right, yeah, yeah. is a transplant. It, there is a different, I mean, yes, the good life, which is, you know, as old as the Romans or the Greeks as a discussion, if not sure older, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like, is it um, peace and happiness yeah. and, you know, being well fed and yeah. playing fun games? Yeah. Is it adventure? Is it mm-hmm. creation? Mm-hmm. Is it messy? I mean, there's, 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 these, this almost, I think, becomes, maybe this is the, the, the key thing about a lot of these things is like, imagine that we now live in this world that is super empowered in a lot of ways. We have these mm-hmm. magical new superpowers. We can do things our ancestors couldn't dream of. Hopefully our great grandchildren will do things we can't dream of. But right. on that curve of empowerment, we are now forced to come back to this age old question, right? Which is like, what are we optimizing for? Right. Right. Exactly. Um, because the reality is, is the Scandinavian model appeals to many, but it doesn't appeal to everyone. Yeah. Um, it's hard to argue it shouldn't be an option <laughs> that way. Right. But I, I'm not entirely sure that, uh, I mean, you can frame it so it doesn't appeal to everyone. <laughs> but I, I, w- I would argue that the things that people want in, uh, you know, in, you know, Trump country, you know, is actually something that looks a lot like what David Autor. So they, they want meaningful work. That's- and, and they want to be paid fairly for that meaningful work and they want to be respected and they want to basically and, and they have already good. They want the values of, of, of having good social interaction with their friends and family and time with their family. I'm speaking out of my depth, <laughs> yeah. but I do understand from some of the studies I've heard about basic income. Yeah. Right. That actually, in a lot of cases, if you go and ask people, you know, yeah. in Trump country, truck drivers or do you want a basic income? Oh, yeah. They'll I, say absolutely not, right? They actually say no. Right, but that's not what Norway did. With no, I understand. Income. I understand. It was culturally very different, the expectations they set around it and the framing. Oh, yeah. Um, I totally... I think that... To, the, the, you know, my, there's a great line from T.S. Eliot that I think applies really well uh, to basic income. This is in Murder in the Cathedral where 
character says, uh, this last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right deed for the wrong reason. <laughs> um, and I, I think that the idea of, um, yeah, people want to work. I, I think we're far better, you know, like going, how do we make sure that people... But they also want to not more? rely on the government. That's right? right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I was just talking with uh, uh, Zach Exley, uh, mm-hmm. who lives in Missouri. And he's talked, a lot. He's, he actually has run a bunch of focus groups with people there. And the thing that they want the government to do is to invest in their communities. They, they want, they want the kind of investment that Japan and South Korea and Singapore made, where those countries, yeah, and China has made, where those countries basically said, we believe that we need to be, uh, you know, we need to be getting to X. You know, uh, they they actually want government to invest mm-hmm. in in creating businesses, in creating you know new industries. Uh, it's kind of an interesting perspective because they believe in work, and they're kind of like, why are we not getting any? Yeah, and, and I, I think we have to ask ourselves why. You know, it's like this. There's a lot of shit to do. Why yeah. are we not putting people to work? Yeah, I mean, amen on that. I think that's like yeah. one of the great travesties is we we're wasting a lot of human potential and attention right yeah, now. Yeah, you know, and, and, and I really think that it's because of this, you know, optimization for financial markets over the real economy. I think that's part of it, but I also do just wonder, the bar has gotten higher for doing that. Like, it's hard, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I mean that only in the sense of like, you know, Several generations ago, where you could, you know, wield a shovel or a pickaxe, right? There was, it wasn't necessarily the most highfalutin work, but there was some way to contribute. I think one of the biggest challenges now is that the bar for contribution has gotten higher. That doesn't mean that you can't get everyone to contribute. You absolutely can and you should, but it's not, it's not such a foregone conclusion. Yeah, no, I, I, I understand. I do think though, I mean, again, some of it's, it's, uh, there's some really interesting, arbitrage. I bet there are a lot of people in the world who, given the opportunity to move into our, uh, you know, places that that people, Americans are going, well, I don't want to live here anymore. Yeah. You go, man, this is great. We'll take it. Absolutely. You know, you know, know, it's kind of one of the things that I think, so the really interesting, you know, question that we should be asking ourselves, and I find it so frustrating, you know, like I, I, maybe it's just a, it's probably not entirely fair, but um, sidewalk labs drives me nuts. Tell me more. Um, I go, oh my God, you know, like there are tens of millions of people. They're called refugees. They need cities. We're giving them these shitty refugee camps. Why aren't you kind of like, there's this really great concept from Eric Von Hippel, who's an MIT professor, who said, if you want to actually, uh, you know, really do innovation you find the most extreme environments Mm -hmm. you know so like you know they learned a lot about uh you know surgery from you know battlefields and 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 about wound dressings from or or, or you know the space exploration yeah a lot of great technology that's right so if you want to figure out the city of the future like where better than by dealing with this incredibly extreme environment of displaced peoples yeah you know, why would you go say we're going to make this for a bunch of, of, of techies where, you know, it's like we're going to make this sort of lab, uh, sort of abstract. And I kind of have a, a, a very practical example of this in my own past. And it's it's one of my 
things I sort of feel guilty about. And it's probably not entirely true, but <laughs> I feel like I killed Pearl, the Pearl program. <laughs> uh, and the reason I killed Pearl was a lot like Sidewalk Labs. I hired Larry Wall and I said, great. I, you know, you're, you're now, your job now is to do whatever you want to do with Pearl. And I basically... You took said, away the pressure. I took away any pressure on him. Uh, to And always before, Pearl had been a reaction to his real job. Yeah. Where he had some new problem to solve and, and it kind of led him into new new worlds. And then suddenly, as, as uh, I think Lincoln Stein, who was a well-known Pearl programmer, said, you know, Pearl 6 became an art project. Yeah. And I said, maybe not entirely fair. Maybe it would have happened anyway. <laughs> but, you know, that, that when you take people out of that pressure of the real world – you do miss something. Uh, and, and I do think that, that, you know, we as a tech industry should be um, looking for the hardest problems. And I remember. Well, the good news is I think we found them. <laughs> yeah, or they found us. They found us. <laughs> not, I'm not super worried about, yeah. about the big tech platform is not having some of the world's hardest problems to deal with right now. No, but there's still, you know, like I, I look, if you look at a lot of the energy of Silicon Valley startups, it, there was a lot of wasted energy of triviality. You know, we're going to be the Uber for parking. We're going to be the Uber for dry cleaning. We're going to be the, you know. Yeah, and, I, look, and, I get you know, your v- point. Versus, you know, like Elon Musk is like, you know, shit, we're not getting anywhere with global warming. You know, I want to actually kickstart the market for electric cars. That's yeah. like, that's that's badass. That Look, there's a lot of badass in a lot of different Ways I think I think the problem, as you well know, right, is some projects that start out looking tri- pretty trivial become pretty important. Absolutely. Right? And so you take like an Uber. Absolutely. It's very easy to say, oh my god, you hired a private driver. You're text messaging him. And he's coming and picking up this. That's totally, pretty high to- on the to- trivial totally index, agree. right? And so I think but the question. I, but here I will I will challenge you a little bit on that because I don't think Uber would have become Uber without. Uh, Sunil Paul at Sidecar and Logan and yep, John at Green, and they basically had the vision of re- of reinventing yep. transportation and involving ordinary people in transportation. So they were actually had that big vision and that trivial vision that was the beginning, the seed of Uber. You know, of of like get, making it easier for a couple of rich guys to get a black car. Was not the world changing idea. The no, world changed, but they, think, they executed better. I do think though that there's the freedom to explore. I mean, again, Facebook. I think is another example. Lots of revisionist history, but in the end of the day, like it did not start as a global social network for everyone trying to connect the world. No, not I, even. I, no, I, I don't. I don't. Just, so I, I actually think what it is actually you go back to these runaway algorithms is that yeah. when things start working, they create ramps, and those yeah. ramps you can build upon to do things you couldn't possibly have imagined. No, I, I, no, I don't disagree with that. No, I, I don't disagree with that. But I also do think that we have a responsibility of an industry and also an opportunity as an industry uh, to work harder on uh, on just identifying things that are worth doing. I agree. But here's an interesting actually counter argument yeah. or a different way to look at the same problem, which is one thing that I worry about right now is that the tech, the big tech companies are so rich. And so relatively powerful, you can talk about how powerful they really are, that it's actually quite easy to paper over a bunch of really fundamental problems and yeah. not actually do the hard work of addressing them, yeah. but instead kind of nibble around the edges and placate yeah. and like 
create a world which is fundamentally unsustainable, but looks okay for now. Yeah. Right. Um, sure. And so that's actually anything about like these structures around Google and who gets paid and ad markets and where content gets created or, you know, Facebook and who can say what and what's permissible on platform or not. You know, you can say, hey, we'll just hire a thousand more models or 10,000 more models or a hundred thousand more models. You know, you figure out any way that actually the capital and the cash gives you freedom to do things that aren't going to work long term. Mm-hmm. Um, but do make it work for the next decade. And that's actually my big fear. It's actually almost in some ways the opposite of the triviality, which is that yeah. the big problems are somewhat easy to solve short term. Yeah, but they're not easy to <laughs> but solve. But they're not solve, they're not easy to get the right answer on, yeah. right? Yeah. And there's a big difference between those two. Yeah, I, I do anyway, I guess I would say it's a balance because yeah. I do agree that the sort of the you know, what my friend Bill Janeway calls Schumpeterian waste of uh, you know, searching the possibility space through a bunch of startups, most of which are going to fail, is in fact an incredibly powerful tool. Yeah. But it's not the only tool in the toolbox. And we've, we've basically raised it, I think, uh, into the pantheon. And basically at the same time as we've pushed down, uh, you know, the idea, for example, of government intervention, you know, government intervention is always bad, the market always good, when in fact, you kind of look and you go, you know, almost everything that Silicon Valley depends on was the result of government funded research, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, you, you look at how much of the success of economies has come from enlightened government leadership. Uh, it, it really is, uh, you know, it, you know, we have the wrong narrative in some basic so, ways. Can I ask a question? I mean, this might be a good one to end on because I'm very curious about about your viewpoint on this. Do you think we live in an exceptional time, or do you think that we're just playing the same games and having the same conversations we've had for a long time, just at more scale? Uh, that's a really interesting question. No, I don't think it's at all exceptional. Yeah, uh, I, I think even on the question of everybody's like, well, the pace of change is so much faster. And I go, it's bullshit. Yeah. You know, it's like, just look in my own lifetime, you know, we're, we're, uh, now, uh, you know, depending, you know, when I, if you look at the, from the long arc of history and you compare, say, to the evolution of, um, you know, the, the, the first industrial revolution, you go from the spinning Jenny to the fully integrated, you know, fabric mills of the 1840s, right? You know, 70, 80 years, you know, well, people will go and they'll go, yeah, first, you know, digital computing, 1940s, uh, you know, up to now 70, 80 years. Yeah. It's like, and, and they're going to go, yeah, it's about, it, they'll look functionally equivalent. It just looks a lot you know, faster to us because we're right in the middle of it. Yeah. But from a distance, I go, yeah, for Christ's sake, even the World Wide Web, the World Wide Web is 30 years old. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, we're now 10 years into the smartphone, you know. Uh, um, so I, I guess I feel like we we have this illusion that it's moving faster. I've been using this great line from Hemingway in a bunch of my talks lately where uh, in The Sun Also Rises, this one character's asked how he went bankrupt. And he said uh, two ways, gradually, then suddenly. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like technological change happens like that. It's sort of like it's accumulating. And the the sense of speed is a result of all this stuff that's been accumulating for a long time. And I think we we may be coming into some gradually, then suddenly moments. Yeah. You know, where all this stuff that was, you know, building suddenly comes together. And I think that's both in a you know, in a positive way, 
you know, like, uh, you know, in the book, I kind of trace the history of Uber and Lyft a little bit. And you look at Sunil Paul in 2000, you know, filed a patent that described almost the entire system. Yep. You know, and all the things that would be possible matching up with phones. But there were no smartphones, really. You yep. know, and a lot of the capabilities just weren't there. Yep. And, uh, you know, so 17 years, uh, you know, so it's really. And then even when, you know, uh, Uber started 2008, all the capabilities weren't there. It really didn't really click until 2012. And it didn't really kind of take off. And even now, it's still not really in its full, you know, this whole on-demand uh, you know, revolution of, oh, wait, our phones let us match things up in real time and yep. all kinds of things become possible as a result of that. And, you know, everything from drone delivery and, you know, we're, you know, we're going to look back in another four or five years and we go, oh, wow, that was a 20, 25 year process. Yeah. Although I will say one thing that is interesting is both, and this goes back to your point about financial markets, which is that because it is so easy to envision the curve. People always say it's hard to predict the future, but I'm not sure it's actually that hard to predict the long-term future. I think it's hard yeah. to get the timing right. But yeah. you think about a world where both, not only the writers and the thinkers, but also the capitalists mm-hmm. can move much faster than the reality mm-hmm. um, creates an interesting effect on that, right? Yeah. Where yeah. the valuations lead um, the deployment um, and the, the wealth leads to deployment. And that, I think, creates some really interesting evidence. Sometimes really good. Sometimes maybe really bad. Like well, your yeah, there really is that argument that bubbles have, have, are sort of essential part. You know, yeah. Economist Carlotta Perez wrote this book, Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital, and kind of traced through every technological revolution has been accompanied by a bubble. Yeah. So I think that, that yes, that that's actually a feature, not a bug. Um, but, the, the you know, again, it's just really a matter of balancing the the thing that I, I I guess matters most to me is that we start to take back our agency, and it's at every level. <coughs> you know, realizing that we choose what Facebook shows us, even though there yeah. is this algorithm which has an objective function, we actually can intervene in that. You know, if you if you uh, like pictures of your friends and their kids and their vacations, Facebook will show them. Uh, well, not only will Facebook show uh, them, but they will be incentivized to create more of them. It's, that, it's not just that the Facebook that, agency. Right. That's, that's right. You know, if you, you know, uh, you know, like hyperpartisan news articles, Facebook will show more of them to you. It's and more of them will be created. No, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's a mirror and an incentive system and we are complicit in it. And so we have to kind of look inside. And that's one of the really interesting things about this age of, of AI and algorithms and big data. They're actually giving us a lot of insight into our society yeah. and what choices we make. And, as we see those choices, we can make different, better choices. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, I really appreciate you coming by and taking the time. This was really fun. It was um, fun. And I think it's an interesting set of conversations that, you know, the funny thing to your point about how different it is, part of me feels like you could have had this conversation a hundred years ago, right? Yeah, um, you could, totally. And that's an interesting, I find that to be a really interesting property these days, right? Yeah. That these conversations are both fascinating and new and very, very old. Oh, they are. And actually, one of my uh, things that I love to do is I, I these old books that you may have heard of, but you've never read, you know, and they're like a time machine. Yeah. Yeah. There's a book, uh, you know, that you may know from, pro- most people probably know uh, from the uh, movie by Orson Welles, The Magnificent Ambersons. Mm-hmm. It's a book by Booth Tarkington. And it's basically about the transformation of society as a result of the automobile. Yeah. And it's an incredible morality tale and you know anybody today could go oh wow uh, there's so much you could learn uh from 
that as a business. Or you look back to uh, one of Anthony Trollope's novels from the 1850s, The Way We Live Now, which was about a stock market. That wasn't a stock market bubble. It was some other kind of bubble. I forget which one it was. The real, maybe it was the railroad uh, yeah. uh, uh, mania. You know, uh, and again, you know, it was just like, it's like a roadmap to, you know, stuff that we've, we've lived through. And, you know, so history may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. It rhymes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming. It was great to see you.